Welcome to episode 115 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how are you, my friend? Okay, okay. Nothing nothing too exciting, but nothing too disastrous either. How about you? I'm good. Uh, aside from Kenley Jansen blowing his first save of the season, I'm good. Guess, <laughs> and that's guess even what, a small Guess a what? Small these things happen. Yes. <laughs> these, these things do happen. And again, it's a long season, as the kids say. Yes. Well, no one listens to this show to hear me talk about baseball. So let's move on to headlines. What do you say? Bring it on. Up first in this week's headlines... Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's first Netflix series has been announced. It's the unscripted Heart of Invictus, focusing on the Invictus Games, the international sporting event founded by Harry. The Duke of Sussex will appear in front of the camera and will also serve as executive producer. In other series pickups, Peacock has ordered eight episodes of a new take on the groundbreaking drama Queer as Folk from creator Stephen Dunn. HBO Max has ordered Minx, a 1970 set comedy about the founding of a porn magazine for women, starring Ophelia Lovibond and Jake Johnson. And Tom Holland will star in an anthology exploring mental health from Akiva Goldsman from Apple. And you can go back and listen to our fantastic interview from episode 109 in February with original Queerest Folk creator Russell T. Davies, who will executive produce the Peacock Take. And Davies talks all about the importance of Queerest Folk and its influence on It's a Sin. And that would be back in February in episode 109. In broadcast news, MacGyver will end this month after five seasons on CBS. And Fox has given an early season three renewal to the animated comedy Duncanville, and canceled the sophomore comedy Bless the Hearts. And let me tell you, with some honesty I can say, I really can't tell those two shows apart. <laughs> on the development side, Tyler Perry will explore the origin story of Medea in a prequel series for Showtime. Wrapping up, The Neighborhood creator Jim Reynolds is out of the CBS comedy, with a new showrunner set to take over for the upcoming season after CBS received complaints from black writers who quit the show. Yeah, one, just one of a few headlines about uh, shitty men this week at uh, THR. Yep, there definitely have been several places where the shittiness has come home to roost this week. Uh, we definitely recommend you checking out Kim Masters, friend of the five, uh, and her story detailing basically all of the things that you've been waiting to hear that happened behind the scenes with Ray Fisher and Warner Media on Justice League. And then you can also check out our cover story this week, which is about perhaps the worst kept secret in all of entertainment, that Scott Rudin is an awful, awful person. So, and, and props to our colleague Tatiana Siegel um, on that cover story. Indeed, yes. Lots of, I mean, the, these are not stories that are going to make you feel good about this industry that we cover because they're exposing a lot of horrible behavior that went on largely unabated for, in some cases, years and in other cases, decades, or in Scott Rudin's case, an entire career. Um, but... I guess the way we look at it is that every story that gets out there now is a thing that encourages people to tell their current stories. And so basically, people need to understand that you can be treated like a human in your workplace, and you deserve to be. Well said, my friend. Well said. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. 
Leading off this week, HBO is celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the launch of Game of Thrones. Joining us this week to break down the state of the franchise is the newest member of the THR family, writer-at-large James Hibbard. Thanks for joining us, James. Thanks for having me. So there's lots going on with the franchise. You wrote a very, uh, very smart story this week about a new trailer that came out for season eight, for the final season, which of course has already aired two years ago. Um, you broke some great news last week that there's a Broadway show in the works with George R. R. Martin. Uh, you've got a great roundup of all the other uh, Game of Thrones spinoffs and prequels and things that are in various stages of development as HBO continues its efforts to grow the franchise. But to me, it's the piece of releasing a new trailer for a season that's already aired that was really perplexing. So what's going on? Why are they doing this? And, and like, is this only just feeding and giving more momentum to, to the fans and the crazy petitions calling for a redo of season eight? I, I mean, only Game of Thrones could manage to have a very popular trailer that gets a bunch of people talking about a season that ended two years ago. You know, it's it's the uh, but it's but it's the iron anniversary of the launch, as they're calling it. And moreover, uh, you know, we're coming up on two years since the finale and HBO is looking for ways to suggest that fans do a rewatch. Um in helping push HBO Max. Shocker. So they're, they've been rolling out these new official trailers for every season of the show. So, you know, we, we did one on season eight because that's the one people were discussing the most. And because of Thrones fans are always uh, <laughs> discussing season eight, or at least some of them are. And um, remake season eight has been a fan rallying cry since the end of the show. And I think with the recent release of Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League, it kind of makes fans think that that's probably easier to do and more likely than it actually is. I mean, when what impression do you get regarding how genuinely anyone thinks this is something that they either want or could happen? And I guess the follow-up question is, how much has the Snyder Cut and whatever it is, how much has that empowered uh, <laughs> empowered this belief? You know, it's tough to say because, because you know, as you know, when, when you're looking at responses on 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 Twitter, and I think this is actually something the Game of Thrones showrunners have said in interviews before. It's like. It, you don't know how much of that is reflective of of the fandom at large. You know, you know what you know to to what degree are those tweets that you're seeing, uh, you know, representative of people's feelings as a whole. I mean, there's definitely very, I think, some very sincere people out there that are very sincerely passionate about wanting season eight remade. You know, to to some extent, it feels sometimes like when you're reading these tweets, it sometimes feels like you're having a you're talking to a friend who's always obsessing about their ex that broke up with them. And he's like going on and on about how terrible the ex was and how much they don't love them anymore. And you're sitting there thinking, dude, you guys broke up two years ago, you know, maybe go out with another show now, <laughs> you know? So, 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 so there's that. And, and of course on the other end, there's HBO and HBO of course has no interest in doing that. And there's, and the cast has no interest in doing that. And, um, and Benny so and Weiss have no interest gonna, in doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So certainly not, but then the fans, they, and the fans wouldn't want Benioff and Weiss, you know, doing that anyway. So, you know, uh, HBO isn't going to devalue their property by making some insanely expensive correction to a season that won the Emmy for Best Drama. That's, they're they're going to leave their original in series intact and just, you know, move on. But you do have a theory about how Game of Thrones uh, and how this fandom <laughs> could get a different ending to this series. And it's it's pretty interesting to hear you talk about it. I, I kind of kind of surprised my, myself because I've been so kind of adamant that that you know that's never going to happen. And then only in the last couple months, uh, with all the news that's come out, 
uh, in terms of you know six new uh, you know prequels in various stages of development, the Broadway show, um, you know that's in the works. I started to have a glimmer of something that that is hypothetically possible, and and, and basically that's this. It, it's it's a uh, you know when George R. R. Martin finishes his last two books, he has two more books coming with The Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring and the Song of Ice and Fire saga. He's told me that there's going to be some very significant differences between the books and the show, and the prequels that are being developed are largely using a very small amount of previously published materials, like the scrapped Jane Goldman pilot that, that was shot. That was literally built off of just a few sentences of, of his history of, of Westeros. So once George is finished, there's going to be like around, you know, judging by the, the length of his last couple books, like around 2,000 pages of a new A Song of Ice and Fire material, and HBO owns the rights to those books. So is HBO not going to do anything with those books when they're mining his world of ice and fire so heavily? I think they would be tempted to do something with it if enough time has passed and if the books are different enough. It's just a matter of, of what form that takes. But, but it wouldn't be like, um, here's a new season eight of Game of Thrones. It would be framed as, you know, here's Martin's radically, you know, radical different vision for the end of a song of ice and fire based on books that weren't available at the time of the show and probably employing special effects that are far beyond what, you know, our abilities are now or when, you know, Game of Thrones was made. So, so we're, we're talking about something that's like hypothetical 10 years from now, but I don't think is outside the realm of possibility. Right. But then there's, you know, if that is, you know, since we are speaking in hypotheticals, then it's like, that's a lot of ifs. what are the, <laughs> right. Yes. And then you add the, what if the availability of the cast and the interest of the cast in, in trying to, to come back and re getting every, and getting everyone back together. And, you know, just from a business standpoint and a scheduling standpoint, imagine the money involved in trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the cast has no interest now, but I mean, we've all seen these situations where it's like casts are like, no, no, we're done. We're done. And then many years go by and then someone backs up a money truck and, and suddenly they're interested again. You know, on the other hand, it wouldn't make sense to have like, you know, you know, you know, a, you know, 30 year old Sophie Turner playing, playing Sansa Stark again, but on the other hand, fans, you know, probably wouldn't, wouldn't care, you know, if, if the age, you know, discrepancy, you know, you know, it didn't work. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the question of whether they would try to get the, the former cast back or, or just do, do a new cast, you know, I mean, and, and again, this is something that's, that's hard to imagine different characters playing those roles or different actors playing those roles rather. But the Broadway show that, that THR, you know, broke last week, that's going to have new actors playing Ned Stark and Jamie Lannister and all these iconic characters in a prequel story. So, so we're already living in a world in which new actors are going to be cast uh, for these iconic roles. Uh, so it, it's not unheard of. It's not unimaginable, rather, to think, you know, you know five, ten years down the line them, you know, you know, having new actors play those roles, you, you know, you know, ju ju just as, you know, you know, new actors play roles in, like in the Marvel universe and so forth. Uh, break down what the Broadway show is going to be for people who have not read your terrific article on The Hollywood Reporter, which they sh totally should. Well, I mean, the, basically the inspiration behind it is, uh, to some degree, is Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which for me was just, I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was a wonderful addition to the franchise, so much more so than, I think, than the Fantastic Beast films. You know, it added a whole new sort of, you know, you know it really took advantage of the, the stage venue to have this very special effects-heavy fantasy story that added to the mythology of, of, of Harry Potter in a new way. And, I, and that's what this is, is looking to do. I mean, it takes place roughly 16 years before the events of 
Game of Thrones, at the fabled attorney of Harrenhal, uh, which was this this sort of Super Bowl of of, of Westeros, you know, jousting, you know, and and uh, and competition tournament where where all the houses came together in a time of peace. But a lot of dramatics happened behind the scenes um, that laid the groundwork for Robert's rebellion. So so you have all these characters who were you know many of the older characters in Game of Thrones when they were either kids or teenagers or or, or young adults during this very dramatic period so I I, I think that's going to be I, I I to me I think that was the the sort of coolest and most interesting thing I've heard in the Game of Thrones world since since the show ended I think there's a lot of possibilities there I also think it's kind of a little bit amusing because George R. R. Martin famously, um, uh, complained, you know, as was in my book about Game of Thrones, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, that he was very disappointed with the budget for the original tournament in season one of Game of Thrones because they didn't really have a budget to pull off the, the big jousting tournament that was in his books. And now he's going to try and pull that off in, on in a theater, theatrical stage, you know, which is which is an even more compressed way of, of, of doing the same thing. I'm, yeah, good luck I'm with not, that budget. I'm not going to lie. This to me does not sound like Anything that's the least bit interesting to me as a Broadway show, but it sounds absolutely fascinating to me as a medieval times show. So if someone were to serve <laughs> me a gigantic turkey leg and let me watch a Game of Thrones uh, jousting event and stage show, I would definitely pay 45 to 50 bucks for that. Uh, you know, a, mu a mug of mead, all of that, I am there. And also, then it wouldn't need to be the sort of inherent elitism of Broadway. If you could have a different... Game of Thrones medieval times in every major city, that to me is where the money is. I mean, yeah. What, the, the, how soon until there's like Game of Thrones in a, at, at like Universal, right? I mean, where there's, you've got Harry Potter in the Wizarding World, right? So, where, there's where no is way the that Game James does not know the answer. There's no way right? James doesn't know the answer to that. James, how long until there's an actual <laughs> Game of Thrones world at one of these places? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that is a uh, good question. Um, the, uh, the the thing thing that's different about Thrones though than, than these other properties, which is I think part of what makes it tricky, is Thrones is like a hard yes. R-rated world. It's not it's not Marvel. It's not Star Wars. It's not supposed to be family friendly. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, you're not going to have incest land at, at, at a theme park. So, 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 so it's like, can they sort of keep, you know, the spirit of what this show is and, or are they, or are they going to kind of water it down as, as they try and broaden it out? I, I have a lot of very grown up friends who are fans of theme parks that are largely tailored to kids. I firmly believe that there is an audience out there for a solidly R-rated theme park. Just an entire theme park, you know, give me give me a brothel, give me the whole thing. I, I you know, blood, guts, sex, that's what the people want, I think. Why why should the 30 Westworld, and 40, basically. Exactly. Why should the 30 and 40-year-olds have to keep going to Disneyland when someone can give them a solidly R-rated Game of Thrones land? And that's I mean, my don't pitch. forget and don't forget there's like The Walking Dead at Universal Horror Nights that was I mean, I've done that walk through bunch of times and yeah that's that's terrifying it's creepy in hell and i mean scary. as 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 a childless adult who still goes to magic mountain and rides every roller coaster in the front row i am down for that as well yeah and as someone who got engaged at disneyland yeah i'm here for all of that too so this is just making me miss theme parks now uh, 
you know, things are things are reopening. It is it is the the way of the world. Um, it's it's where we are. Uh, now, want to backtrack quickly, uh, going back to the when HBO is going to remake the last uh, couple seasons question. When you referred to George R. R. Martin finishing the next two books, you did not refer to if you referred to when. And so, I, I guess we need to ask you how certain you are that that's a thing that's actually going to happen while any of us are still alive. You know, I'm certain he wants to, and I'm certain that he has actually made a lot of progress during the pandemic. I've I've spoken to him during during the pandemic, and where, where, where he's like isolated himself in what he describes as 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 a mountain cabin, and he says that he's done the best writing that he's ever done on this book. Of course, he's been working on this book. Realize since Game of Thrones came out, the last game book in a Song of Ice and Fire came out in 2011. <laughs> so so it's been literally a decade. On one book, and 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 he's not shy about writing something and then throwing it away, deciding that's not good enough. Um, I have every confidence that the Winds of Winter is coming out, and uh, and that we will probably you know get it you know in the relatively near future. A Dream of Spring, that's 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 the tricky one because you know that's starting you know you know his you know he 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 obviously can't keep. With the up with the exponential growth times in terms of how long he's taking on each book, he's going to have to finish that one quicker. But from what he's described, Winds of Winter is 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 in is in many ways presumed to be the harder book because you know he kind of knows where he's going. It's been doing this big pivot where he's been broadening out the world across um, uh, the first five books. And it, it, the whole story in Winds is kind of pivoting and, and having bringing everybody back together. And that's been the kind of tricky part to figure out how to write is, is how do you start pivoting and bringing it all back together? And one thing that's interesting about that, if, you know, for Game of Thrones fans, is that you know, a lot of times the books and, and the show are considered to have you know, different challenges. In my view, they kind of had the same challenge. They both got to the same point in the show at the same point in the story and then began struggling. Um, you know, and in terms of, you know, people's creative complaints with, with, with Thrones, the, the show, you know, those, you know, those complaints started around season five. Well, that's just around the same point that, that, that Martin got log jammed with his story trying to figure out what to do. There's something about the story and how sprawling it is and how big it is and, and how complex it is in terms, of, in terms of what they're trying to do with that story that making that figuring it out after that point is just really difficult to do. And it's been, it was difficult to do for the show and, and it's been difficult to do for George. Yeah. I, I remember when these, you know, when game of Thrones and, and walking dead first started and, and writing stories and editing stories about if the show would ever pass the books. And now here we are and you've got the walking dead comics ended years ago. And then now you've got the walking dead ending in two years from now. And spinoffs, etc. But yeah, anyway, I digress. James, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for the updates. Sure. Thanks. Number two. Up next, this week started with a Bridgerton bombshell with the news that uh, breakout star Reggae Jean Page will not be returning. This news blew up the Bridgerton online community. But fortunately, we happen to have someone on our team who did a wee bit of research on the actual circumstances behind the departure. So, uh, so Leslie, you did a very good piece talking about all of the different things that were both expected and maybe not so expected about this particular departure. So how shocked should we be and, and how sad should fans be? 
Um, I would say not super shocked, but kind of sad. Um, and thank you for the kind words, Dan, as always. But um, yeah, so reggae always had a one season deal from the start. This was always the idea in that every season of Bridgerton will focus on a different member of the Bridgerton family and their quest for marriage. And reggae always had the one season deal. He was never going to be part of the season two plan. And then the show premiered and blew up and he became the show's breakout star. So, of course, the, the show launched on Christmas 2020 and became an instant success. It's got a huge fan base of people who love Julia Quinn's novels on which the series is based. Obviously, it's Shonda Rhimes' very first show for Netflix. So a lot of great variables that combined to break out this show. And he, of course, went on to host SNL and received some great feedback on his hosting gig. And the film offers started pouring in. He just recently wrapped The Gray Man for Netflix and The Russo Brothers. And up next, he's doing the big budget Dungeons and Dragons feature for Paramount. That begins production the end of this month in Ireland. Bridgerton season two just started. Um, they had their first table read early April. And he's taking April to prep for D&D &D in London and go home and get some rest before he goes from one feature to the next. But from everything that I'm hearing, producers kind of said, oh, well, we have a breakout star. Maybe we should go back to him and see what we can do. And he was never part of the plan for season two. Scripts were already written and already well in the works. They had the entire outline of the whole show. And um, I'm told early this year after the show broke out and after he became the breakout star, producers went to him and said, can you come back for three to five episodes We'll pay you $50,000 an appearance, you know, per episode to come back. And everything that I'm hearing, multiple sources are saying close to the show and close to him are saying he declined because for, you know, a, a number of reasons, one of which is he's, his character is not a central figure in the story because that's, he's not part of the central romance in season two. That's, you know, you can go online and, you know, and, and figure out who that that's going to be. Um, I admittedly do, um, do not watch the show, which I probably shouldn't say on this podcast, but there you go. Um, but yeah, so he, he declined and he's focused on features. You know, everything that I'm hearing is his camp is being inundated with film offer after film offer after film offer. The show has served its purpose for him. He's done two, two projects now. He did For the People, which ran for two seasons on ABC with Shonda, with Shonda Land and Shonda Rhimes. She has tweeted that he's always a part of the family and you can go back and watch season one. He's always part of the family. The door remains open if he wants to come back for season three for an episode here or there. But, you know, in a nutshell, he didn't need the show anymore. He's getting film offers. He's moving on. He knew he wasn't part of the story and he wouldn't be a, have a central role in season two. So how does it behoove him to come back aside from honoring the fans who and the show that helped launch him to stardom? And and you can make the argument that, well, you know, this is what got him his career and he's worked very hard for it. But Bridgerton is the one that gave him his big breakout. So he should feel obligated to come back for an episode or two, even though he's not going to have a central role. And he would probably be in, a, in you know, like a, a B or a C storyline. Is it worth it? it? You know, and then when you look at his schedule, it was, you know, his schedule booked up. So you got to take some time for yourself between these projects. And D&D &D is no small undertaking. So... That's the latest that I'm hearing, Dan. And in the meantime, you know, Bridgerton continues to cast up. There's five new new actors joining the show for season two as it shifts its focus to a different sibling and the Bridgerton family. Um, lots, lots going on there. But yeah, so be upset if you want. But this was not on him. 
and it it's not like the show requires him. It's I, I think that's just the simple thing is if you're him, do you really want to be shoehorned into episodes simply because they want to make sure that you're <laughs> <laughs> that you're present and that they can put you in promotional materials. Well, that's that's great for Netflix and promotion, but it's also not really necessarily so great for Bridgerton as a creative property. It's not like there's an organic reason. Um, if they had said, oh, we're going to go away from the books and we want to have you for more, maybe there would be a different conversation. But that's not what the fans of the books want. It, it maybe is what some fans of the show want. But there are lots of people in that cast, and a lot of them were very, very well liked. And people swooned over other people in the cast. I don't think anyone is going to question that he was the breakout star of the first season. Of course you won't. You, you, he was, he was the I mean, person. I he hosted SNL. Yes, he was the person who, when he was on screen, you said, okay, that person is, is going to be a star. There's, there's no questioning that. Whereas a lot of the other people, you go, okay, that person will be starring in, in, PBS masterpiece adaptations for 40 years. And that, by the way, is a pretty spectacular career. And I think probably like 10 people from that cast or 15 people from that cast have now lined themselves up to be PBS staples for life. And that's fantastic. He's the one who you said, okay, that person's a freaking movie star. Um, and sure, it takes a little bit away from the luster of the show to not have him. But I understand why he's trying to do other things with his career and why the show is simply saying, look, we have a blueprint. It's a very, very successful book series. That's just what it is. So I think everyone will survive. There will definitely be some people who will be disappointed. But guess what? If you have looked at the Shondaland precedent for finding hunky and attractive people and putting them on your TV, do you seriously think that she can't find somebody new to add to that show next year who you're going to find hunky? Come on. Yes, she, she is a star maker, obviously. And that that's, I mean, you can look at Ellen Pompeo's career. You can look at what she did for Kerry Washington with Scandal, Tony Goldwyn. There's so, so many, you know. Um, but yeah, so, and, you know, the other piece is, you know, the scripts were already done. So they would have to shoehorn, you know, shoehorn him into season two. Or if they wanted him for a larger role, throw out scripts. And the, anytime you do that, you're going to delay when the show is back. Netflix obviously is going to want, you know, what, what it, it purports to be its biggest original series ever back on a yearly basis. It's not They don't want this to be like a stranger things where it's like you get one season and then wait two and a half years, you know, and then, and then it comes back and it's, you know, it's, it's hard to do that with, with the show and to keep momentum. So to do that, you got to be on the air with some kind of a regular schedule. So yeah, you, you didn't want it to be a shoehorned thing where the Duke popped up and everyone's like, oh, hey, look, it's the Duke. And everyone goes, hi, Duke. And everyone goes, so how's the sex, Duke? And he goes, oh, still humping. And that's his cameo on the show. That doesn't really accomplish anything for the purposes of the show. And that would have been how they would have added him. So, look, everyone, you'll see more of him elsewhere. Bridgerton will be fine. All's well. I'm sorry. I'm going to need you to. To like a loop of saying of you saying still humping on, on just because I can't like I can't unhear that's, it. That's the great thing about podcasts. It's now <laughs> recorded for posterior. Get it? Posterior. Brid Bridgerton, he season, his butt. Bridgerton season two colon still humping. I, if, I, if it didn't already have a different punny name, I'm sure that's what they would use. Yes. Well, I'm gonna, let's try to move on from that, Dan. Number three. Up third, let's go to the mailbag. And a good reminder that if you have questions that you would like to hear Dan and I discuss on the show, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Uh, 
Leading off, friend of the five, Jakub, emails, looking at the Emmy race this year and the comedy series competition seems to possibly look exciting. So you've got the only returning nominee with the Kaminsky Method and the final season of that, which is set to premiere in late May. Then you've got new shows like Ted Lasso and the flight attendants that he thinks are, are locks and new seasons of What We Do in the Shadow and Curb Your Enthusiasm could still make it before the Emmy deadline. But with eight nominations in the field, there's guaranteed to be some surprises. So, Dan, who, what shows do you think could make it? And could the final seasons of some broadcast shows that ended this year, Mom and Superstore, get noticed? Or is there some other under-the-radar streaming or cable comedies that will come from out of nowhere? It is a weird comedy field. It, it just truly is. And honestly, it's a strange drama field. Also, because I think at this point, we're assuming that it's basically just a march to the coronation, so to speak, of the fourth season of The Crown. And even that is one of those random timing attrition kind of things. It's not as if The Crown suddenly became the best show on TV in the past year. No, they had another good year being The Crown. But it's one of those things like that one season where for very little discernible reason, 24 suddenly won the Outstanding Drama Series Emmy just because that was the year they had the opportunity. It's going to be the same thing. And we're looking at that as a sure thing. And then we're scratching our head. Well, okay, what are the other nominees? And one or two of them are inevitable, but there's a lot of wiggle rooms. So yeah, as, as the question says, you know, we're just assuming the Kaminsky method returns for the third and final season in time, which I believe it's going to, and that it, is roughly of a piece and that it gets nominated just because. And that's kind of flimsy, but it's also reasonable. Uh, Ted Lasso is, of course, a lock. It, it will be nominated for comedy series. Uh, Jason Sudeikis is going to win. I don't think anything even needs to be said beyond that. But then you're looking at a lot of other strange things. I, th I think that if you look at Flight Attendant, it made total sense for it to be categorized as a comedy for the Golden Globes. Um, because basically at the time at which they were making that determination, the whole season hadn't aired and it really did feel like a comedy. I think if you look at the, the home stretch of that season, that show's first season, uh, it's as much a drama as anything else. So it's sort of a, it's a, it's a comedy because that's where we put it and sure, why not? But no, like just for fun. To answer this question, I went and glanced over at the good uh, good people of Gold Derby, where, if nothing else, they tend to run down the contenders. And some of the stuff that people are suggesting will be an Emmy cont contention is so strange. Like, I saw several of the experts suggesting that there could be multiple Emmy nominees for acting from Cobra Kai. Now, I like Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai is a good show. It's a fun show. But if you reach the Emmys and Ralph Macchio and Billy Zabka are nominated for Emmys, it suggests that maybe this was a strange year for comedy and maybe we just kind of want to skip that category entirely. So yeah, you, you just look at all of the things that people are like scratching their heads and being like, will Kenan Thompson get a nomination for Kenan? Well, I mean, he could, but that would certainly reflect something very strange happened. Will Ted Danson get a nomination for Mr. Mayor? Well, he could because he's Ted Danson, but he won't get a nomination because he deserves one for Mr. Mayor. Uh, there's a lot of stuff like that where 
it's just head scratching of the shows that are departing. Do I really think that suddenly out of nowhere, Superstore is going to pop up and get nominations? No, it's not. That That's just not how this works. And should it? I can make an argument that that perhaps it should, because that's a show I like. Uh, Mom has a better chance. I don't think it's going to, again, get nominated for comedy series. But Alice and Janie has fallen out in recent years. So, you know, there's some there's something there. Uh, I think she'll be nominated. I think she'll come back in. Um, but you're you're reaching. You're, you're just reaching for everything. And this is one of those things where HBO, by deciding that uh, I May Destroy You, is a limited series, which... It is. That was how they announced it, and that's what they're saying, and no one has renewed it. Uh, so whatever. Still in all, if they had decided to simply say, well, it's a half-hour show, so we're saying it's a comedy, even though it's questionable as a comedy, it's the kind of show where it could have maybe not been a juggernaut, but it could have been very strong. Instead, it's going to be in limited field, which is the part of the Emmys that are a total bear this year. I've said this every single year for like the past six years. If there ever were a year to have comedy and drama treated as almost afterthoughts in the first hour of the Emmy telecast and then dedicating two hours to celebrating limited series, this would be it because that is where the stars are going to be. That is where the big name nominees are going to be. That's where people are going to be like, ooh, this is competitive. This is interesting. Comedy and drama are going to be, okay, The Crown is going to win a lot of stuff. Ted Lasso is going to win a lot of stuff, and that's just what it is. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. We we like those shows, but yeah. Um, yeah. Is there, you, anything that's, is there anything else that's come out this year in the comedy uh, area that you think could, could cut through? I, I don't know, because... There's it's so it's not like there aren't shows. So if you're looking at the number of shows that are going to be uh, competing, then it's really going to be a lot. And it's not like they're going to need to reduce the number of nominees. They're just going to nominate some things that under some circumstances in a year in which HBO, for example, would have had like four or five shows that could have been nominated. This is not that kind of year. And so, you know, part of me thinks yeah, I, I think there are going to be one or two things. I think I think we already know at least one show that nobody is talking about that it's going to premiere in May that I think we can safely guarantee and people will know uh, what it is. And we're not going to say it because it hasn't been announced yet. Yes, you're right. But Got it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm giving Leslie a chance to acknowledge this. We can't tell you it's going to be nominated. And and you can figure out what it is based on previous nominees that still exist. So and it hasn't been on the air in a couple of years. Yeah. Been. So there's at least one of those shows that will be in the in the running. And, and it's a it's a guarantee. So that and I, th I also think, you know, there's a, a couple of shows that that have just uh, come out that I think, you know, in a teaser for our next segment. Made for Love, Kristen Milotti could cut through, I think. She's terrific in Made for Love. And we have an interview with the showrunner, Christina Lee, coming up in just a few minutes here. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can see, her again, though, as I talked about in my review, Kristen Milotti is kind of professionally overlooked in uh, awards races. So I would love – I think she is good enough in Made for Love to deserve a nomination. I think without any question, she is good enough to deserve a nomination, whether or not anyone's going to notice. I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of stuff where there's just no way of knowing where from the ephemera something is going to take hold. Who knows? But yes, as 
as the question posed, it is going to be very interesting. I don't know if it's going to be exciting, because exciting sort of implies that there are going to be 15 shows that are all really, really worthy, and yay, I can't wait to see how it shakes out. Instead, it's going to be a, man, there are going to be some things that are going to get nominated. There are going to be real head scratchers, but that is fun in its own way. Yeah, I think one of my long shots is probably, and this is just me speaking from the heart, is Justice Smith for Generation, which I absolutely love the show and I think he's terrific in it. But I don't think that that's necessarily a critical darling by any any stretch. I just think he's gives a tremendously good. I, I would I would say you're right. I would say you're totally right. I think uh, there's some question is would he be positioned as lead actor? Would he be positioned as supporting actor? And then the bigger question is, is that a show that is likely to get any traction at all with awards groups? And I don't know, but. Yeah, we are going to see. Our second question comes from listener Ben, whose question is about actor-producers in television. I know it's something we see a lot in films, like with Brad Pitt and Plan B, and I know that a lot of actors are producers in their own television projects, like America Ferrera with Superstore and Kaylee Cuoco with Flight Attendant. But I was wondering how common it is for actors to produce TV projects that they don't star in, and he asked what their... Uh, roles are as producer. And mentioned in this context, the aforementioned Generation, which was produced by Lena Dunham, even though she isn't in the show and doesn't direct the show. How common is it? And what do these people actually do, Leslie? Well, it's increasingly common. Um, one of the big ways of luring top talent is by giving them an executive producer credit, um, which also includes a, a an additional fee. So you get paid for your acting role and you get paid as a producer. So a show like Space Force, for example, you had Steve Carell get a huge salary for acting in it. He got another fee for executive producing it. And then he got yet another fee because he co-created it. So, you know, there's some creative math that happens there. But in, in a, you know, with a case like like Generation, you know, you can go back and listen to our interview with Zelda Barnes from March, episode 111, where she talks about having worked and interned with Lena Dunham when Lena was doing industry and kind of shadowing her. So Lena helped with scripts and was kind of the mentor to Zelda, who was a teenager, who's now, I think, 19, uh, now that the show has come out and been working on that since she was 17. But in, in a larger sense, it's increasingly common, you know, um, Kaylee Cuoco got a, um, and all of the stars from the Big Bang Theory back in the day when the show was still on, they, you know, in getting their record setting new talent deals, they all received producing deals. And not every one of the stars decided to be a big producer. Kaylee did, and, and you know, and she did after the show ended. You know, Jim Parsons started right away. Johnny Galecki had a show that aired on CBS for a hot minute. Uh, Jim Parsons does special and a couple of other things. And, you know, Kaylee, you can go back and, and, and listen to our tremendous interview. It was one of, one of my favorites that we've done uh, so far, Dan. That would be in episode 100 in our 2020 year in review from December 18th, where Kaylee talks about her desire of becoming a Greg Berlanti-like producer because she doesn't necessarily need to star in everything, but she does want to have a hand in the creative. And that's what one of the things that you're seeing increasingly more of, where these these top actresses and actors launch production companies because they're pitched stuff all the time, or they option books, or they read something and they're like, oh, this is a great show. I can see this. Why is no one doing this? And they just want to make it themselves. And they have connections with showrunners and producers, and they can sit there and say, 
they become a brand. You know, that's you look at how Shauna did it and she created a brand. And obviously she's a producer, but Kaylee is creating a brand. You know, Ellen Pompeo has a brand. She has a huge deal at, at ABC Studios. They're currently working on, on finalizing that. And she has a producing deal. She just sold a show to HBO Max the other day, you know, and she's developed, the, you know, a lot of things for ABC that, that haven't gone forward yet. But, you know, she's an executive producer on Station 19 because she is involved in the creative a little bit in that, too, when she has time, you know. And I think that's part of the reason that you saw Christopher Vernoff take over the show as showrunner a couple of years because that show was kind of going off the rails and not really connecting. And then they brought in Krista and connected it directly to Gray's because Ellen wanted the quality to to stand for something. And, you know, it's it's just it's increasingly common. You know, America Ferrara, when she signed on to, to a broadcast show, which she hadn't done in years, she exec produced because she wants to tell certain kinds of stories. And, you know, these these actors have a plan for their careers and they have an entire team. You can talk listen to Kaylee talk about her team that she's been with for years about how she wants to spread her wings and what the next chapter of her career is like. And producing is a huge part of it. And it obviously goes back you know, obviously, well before that, you look at Mary Tyler Moore Productions would be a great example of, you know, an absolute powerhouse actor who produced many, many shows that she did not star in because she was a powerhouse producer. Or to refer to one of today's stories uh, in our headlines, the cancellation of the new version of MacGyver, my favorite credit on MacGyver is always that the show in its original incarnation and current incarnation is produced by Henry Winkler. So yep. so there you are. Friend exactly. of the five, Henry Winkler. Friend of the five, Henry Winkler. And so so this is something that obviously, through you know, Desi Lou Productions produced shows that did not feature Desi or Lou. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's something that has happened throughout television history and in different ways. So it's one thing for a star on their own show to have a vanity executive produced by label. But there's there's definitely a lot of other stuff. You know, the thing that Brad Pitt has done with Plan B is is fairly unique. You you look at the movies that Plan B has produced in recent years that have been Oscar winning and Oscar nominated that Brad Pitt has had nothing to do with in front of the camera. This is simply someone who actually likes producing movies. So yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these these actors hire executives to run their production companies and they're deeply involved. And they're like, you can listen to Kaylee talk about, you know, when she was sent the book and how, you know, that inspired her immediately. And, you know, that's that's what these executives are there to do. So not everyone is as involved as a producer or has the same kind of uh, volume goals as, as someone like Kaylee does, but each to their own. But it, it is increasingly common. So. And, you know, just today, you know, we we broke news that uh, Tom Holland was going to star in an anthology for Apple about mental illness. He's executive producing that, too. So, you know, what's his level of involvement? I don't know. The show was announced today, but like that's super interesting to, to find out is if that's something that he's venturing into on his own, if producing is going to be a big piece of it or if it's just, an, you know, a couple extra bucks to get him to sign on to a TV show. Uh, our last question of mailbag this week comes from listener Matt, who mentions that we briefly innoc and innocuously mentioned Mike Tyson a couple of weeks ago. Why is it that people like Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, and O.J. Simpson are largely and probably rightfully vilified by the public, but Mike Tyson is accepted and at times embraced by those same people? The first three, while probably guilty of terrible things, have never been convicted of the worst things they allegedly did. Mike Tyson is a convicted in, in a court of law rapist. I'm not defending any of these four people, but I have become increasingly curious as to why this dichotomy exists. And that is a direct quote from listener Matt. And Dan, he's not wrong. 
Oh, he's definitely not wrong. Uh, we we came very close to doing a segment on this exact topic a couple of weeks ago uh, because there are, as we've mentioned on the podcast, a couple of different Mike Tyson projects in the works. There is two. Tell the kids about them. Yeah, there's the uh, unauthorized take, which is from Margot Robbie's production company and is being done for Disney backed Hulu. Uh, that was picked up straight to series. And then there is the long gestating Martin Scorsese produced authorized Mike Tyson biopic that was originally envisioned as a feature film with a big studio attached to it that this has been in development and toiled away with Jamie Foxx set to star as Mike Tyson for years. And now it's being adapted as a limited series. There's no studio attached. There's no network attached, but you do have a convicted rapist attached. So... Yeah, I personally couldn't care less about an authorized take on Mike Tyson's life uh, because Mike Tyson's candor has always been extraordinarily uh, selective. And this is not to say that Mike Tyson has ever presented himself as a choir boy. He has not. He just chooses very, very carefully which of the various violent crimes he has been accused and in some cases convicted of, he wants to discuss and which he does not. Uh, the question that Matt asked is an extremely interesting question because Mike Tyson has repurposed his career as a lovable and cuddly eccentric in recent years. He had an animated show about him. He on Adult Swim from Warner Media. He had obviously another Warner Brothers project, The Hangover, where he had a lovable and cuddly cameo. And it's a strange thing, given his background. I, I have theories on this, and some of them relate to the fact that he has been in the public eye since he was a teenager, and there has always been a dichotomy in how he was presented. There was always the Mike Tyson who was the vicious, you know, potent boxer in the ring, and then there was... Ear-biting the, boxer, yeah. That was later. That was that was later, He, but he was... You know, for 20 years, he was the guy who knocked people out in 15 seconds. And it was always a key part of his persona that on one hand, there was the Mike Tyson in the black trunks who knocked people out in the ring. And then there was the soft-spoken Mike Tyson with the, with the speech impediment and the story about the daddy issues and the hard scramble young adulthood, you know, out of the ring. And so people kind of, I guess, made their peace with the idea that there was violent Mike Tyson and then there was quieter, softer Mike Tyson. And then when quieter, softer Mike Tyson turned out also to be a convicted rapist and other various violent things, it was like in people's minds they'd already excused or compartmentalized or learned to compartmentalize these things about him. It's not good. It's conspicuously bad that we've allowed it to happen. One thing you, you could say is that in contrast to some of the other people that the question mentioned, Mike Tyson did serve time for his crime. Some of these people have not necessarily served time. OJ served time for different crimes. So whatever. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not it's not good. <laughs> and, and it's and it's not good that press releases get written and sent out like, oh, he had a difficult life and look where he made it. He did have a difficult life. He also made many people's lives much more difficult than they would have been if he had not been involved with it. And 
the things that he actually served time for do not actually represent all of the things he has been accused of. Uh, you, you go and listen to Robin Givens' story. It's about their marriage. He never served time for that. Uh, that was just a thing where he looked a little bad in the public eye. So, no, it's it's a good question, and I, I think that there is an interesting story to be told about Mike Tyson because his story is a fascinating one. He does contain these multitudes. He is the young boy who grew up without paternal figures and found a paternal figure in his, you know, his boxing uh, coach and all of that. He is the man who raises pigeons on a rooftop. That's the other thing. In addition to the animated show and to the hangover cameos, he had a show about his pigeons that was on TV, I think Animal Planet or something. He's all of those things, but he's also a convicted rapist. And uh, I'm Convicted for assault on, I believe, multiple occasions. Uh, he's also a man who's who's haunted by drug addictions. He does contain multitudes. I'm just not interested in any representation that chooses which of the multitudes they want to focus on if the ignoring of the worst of those multitudes is a part of the equation. So, yeah, that is that is my thought on the Mike Tyson of it all and why we have, for some reason, decided that that. We want to cut him slack for some things. It's because the warts and all are part of the equation. He's just always very selective about which warts he wants to acknowledge. And I'm not version interested in a version of the story where he's vetting his warts. Right. So and keep in mind that there's no network attached to that yet in those studios. So whoever picks it up is going to have to be the in-house production arm of it, too. So be very curious who's going to pick that up. So t Mike Tyson attached, Jamie Foxx to star, Martin Scorsese executive producing. So yeah, stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Our guest this week is Christina Lee, the showrunner of Made for Love, the dark comedy starring Kristen Milioti that launched this month on HBO Max. Before boarding the series as showrunner, Lee's credits include TBS turned HBO Max comedy Search Party, the wet hot American summer revivals on Netflix, and ABC's Rebel Wilson comedy Super Fun Night. Thanks for joining us, Christina. I'm happy to be here. So getting started, you know, you first joined Made for Love as a consultant before being elevated to showrunner. Walk us through what the draw was. Um, oh, well, I mean, so many things. First of all, um, you know, when I had read the um, original pilot script, it was like nothing that, you know, I had read before. Um, it was really exciting to me. And um, and then um, I read uh, Alyssa's book, and that really did it. You know, it was so weird and funny. And um, the premise itself is so, you know, chilling and disturbing. But Alyssa has a way of 
bringing such unexpected humor to it. The tone that she set in the book, I thought was just fantastic and um, exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to do next. So then when I was given the opportunity to, you know, really work with her to, you know, create an entire world, you know, for television, uh, it was so exciting to me because it just really hits what I love most of, you know, um, comedy and drama and um, and being in that place of, you know, sort of darkness, but absurdity. So it, it hit all the things that I, I look for. So what happened with the, with the conversation where you went from a consultant to actual showrunner? Because I think, you know, in, in covering the development of the show, Patrick Somerville was always set to, to showrun it. And you joined after the writer's room was already staffed, et cetera. Yeah, I, you know, I joined um, I joined the writer's room when they were in session um, already. And, you know, as we were developing, I think that sort of our intentions on what the show, what we felt like the show should be um, sort of changed. And, you know, and that was along with like the network and the studio. And um, and then Patrick has another show called Station Eleven that he's working on. So it just made sense. Also for Max, yeah. Yeah, for HBO Max. So it made sense for me to step in. And Alyssa and I, you know, I will say that um, I've never had the experience before of meeting somebody, you know, brand new like that, where we both felt like we ha- had chipped each other's brains um, because what she wanted for her show and what I envisioned for the show were, I have to say, exactly the same. I mean, it surprised us so many times. We were like, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so it was just a natural sort of progression um, for me to step in as showrunner and, um, and you know, sort of take over. And she and I really took the reins in, you know, rewriting a lot of stuff. And, um, and just um, what we wanted was to show this, you know, kind of, you know, sci-fi story, but from a female lens. And that was really important to us. And so we had the same approach. Now, this might sound sarcastic, and I swear it isn't. I love the half-hour format. And I love the half-hour format when you have as many tones as this show does and when you are tackling as many big ideas because everything suddenly becomes more digestible when it's in 28-minute bites. Talk a bit about finding the structure of what this was supposed to be, both episodically and seasonally. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that when people say, like, what is this show? I think it's hard to categorize sometimes. And, uh, you know, and in, in preparation for, like, all of these, you know, interviews, I was like, how do I how do I say it? But I think the answer is that it's, you know, it doesn't fit into any category. And that's sort of what I love about it. You know, it's a comedy. It's a drama. Um, there, you know, tonally, I think there's moments where you want to sit in it and, you know, and um, really soak in like what's happening and, you know, the darkness of that. And other times you're just like, it's fast paced and, you know, it's like on the edge of danger and it's funny, hopefully. And, um, and so I think that, you know, we just wanted, um, to make sure that it all felt, even within this fantastical world, it all felt grounded. And, um, and so that was sort of our leading, you know, our leading premise. And then, um, and we wanted it to be fun. So I think, you know, with a half hour, it sort of lends itself to be like, at the end of this, we want the audience to just be like, having fun and feeling like they're on a ride of some sort. So if this was hypothetically being submitted for Emmy uh, award season consideration, would this compete as a comedy or a drama? I think a comedy. Interesting. And then I just want to double back to something that that you said a minute ago, where you said that, you know, in taking over for Patrick, you and and Alyssa both wanted to show this as a sci-fi story from a female lens. Was that not what it was originally when you came aboard? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the character of Hazel, um, you know, was always our heroine, and you know, it's through it's through her experience. But I think that in Alyssa and I sort of taking over creatively, um, it naturally progressed into much more of a female story, just naturally, um, because of you know where um, what where, where our heads are at, and also, um, you know, Alyssa and I talked a lot about sci-fi, you know, movies and shows that we love. We're both like very avid, you know, like sci-fi fans. Um, but then we talked about where we felt like, you know, things were missing from even, you know, um, things that we love. And I think that there is, has been a male lens into sci-fi for most things, even when there's a female heroine. And, um, it was important for us that, our character had agency and our character, you know, wasn't the victim, even though, you know, she's fleeing. And a lot of times you're, you know, you're seeing things from the perspective of, you know, who's watching the person and she's the one that's being watched. And how do you take that character and, um, and let her make her own choices? And the, and the first season is is all female directors, right? So was when was that something that you decided that you would want to do? And what were the backgrounds you were looking for in in the directors who you brought in? Yeah, I mean, we just you know, I think that we wanted um, directors who um, just really had empathy for the characters, you know. I think the thing that was important for us is that none of the characters, even when they're doing bad or questionable things, came across as, you know, just typical villains. And that was, that's really, you know, something that I credit to the directors is that they found the humanity in all of the characters. And, um, and that despite this being a sci-fi show, we wanted, um, a real emotional journey. And so we were looking for, directors to really pull that out as opposed to focusing on, you know, more of the, you know, what might be um, exciting at first, which is, you know, all the sci-fi parts of it. We knew that that would be there. And um, but we it was important for us to get those performances, which they did beautifully. So Made for Love, which we should note, launched it with three episodes on April 1st and released three more this week before you have two more for the, the finale next week. The show itself has has so much to say about the dangers of technology and men attempting to control women's lives, as well as a lot of themes of, of loneliness. You know, in, in a larger sense, when you and Alyssa took over and, and thought about what you wanted to make this show into, what kind of larger statement are you hoping to make? What kind of what were you both hoping to make with Made for Love? I mean, we, you know, we talked a lot about past relationships, um, you know, particularly for her in what inspired her to write her book. Um, and, you know, we talked about like wanting to wanting to exit out of a relationship when um, when there is so much, you know, technology that that makes it so that you can't fully hide, you know, you can't fully start a new life, you know, because um, there's always people who are going to be, you know, like sending you the post of that person's, you know, <laughs> sending you that person's new post or, you know, or sending your post to them. And, you know, it's hard to fully disconnect. And so we talked about, basically, we talked a lot about um, just, you know, the complications of extracting yourself from a controlling relationship, especially when you have, um, social media and, um, and all of the, you know, things that technology allows that make the disconnection between two people much harder. 
And, um, and then we, um, and then we talked about like, what's, you know, like, what is the, you know, like most extreme version of that? And it's the character that she created, Byron Gogol. And, you know, one thing that I will say that I feel very heartened is, um, we've gotten a lot of responses from women since the show has aired, um, where they're like, this really speaks to me because I went through a divorce and, um, or I just went through a really terrible breakup. And I know in a, you know, a sense what this feels like. And that's a lot of the conversations that we had. Um, and then we also talked to just a lot about privacy and, um, and, you know, this is like the worst, you know, like nightmare for somebody to be invaded, um, with their privacy in this way. But we talked a lot about just like women and, um, and the challenges they have in just, you know, privacy and those kind of things. So. Well, I mean, to me, it's funny because if we're talking about a a company that at this particular moment has more data on the American people than any other company in the entire universe, you're making this show for that company at this moment, you know, between Warner Brothers and AT&T. Is that the sort of thing that you're joking about on the side? You know, ha ha ha, techno capitalism is evil. Let's go get our paychecks from Warner Brothers AT&T. Or do, do you do you keep that part of the conversation quiet? <laughs> and we should also probably note that the show is produced by Paramount Television, so which is another Viacom company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that in order to survive life, you have to sort of put that out of your mind. <laughs> Because otherwise, if you start thinking about it too much, you're like, oh, my God, you know, it's just like everyone owns us. Everyone controls us. You know, we we can't escape. Um, so it's easier for us to approach it like, hey, this is fiction. It's fine. You know, um, but, um, you know, even as we were writing, you know, we're talking about like something so in- insane of. Uh, chip in someone's brain. And then, you know, we run an article that Elon Musk is developing a chip to insert in in a brain. So it's like, this is not too far into the future, you know? Do you find it funny that we don't treat Elon Musk as the evil James Bond villain that really and truly he is? I mean, because you have a character who's who's pretty much treated that way. And yet, for some reason, we laugh at Elon Musk's tweets and we're like, ha ha ha, he's this funny social media personality who's developing a chip he's going to put in all of our brains. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so, yeah, it's so bizarre. I mean, we, you know, we definitely have a um, fascination with him and, um, and, you know, admittedly, you know, we watched, we watched a lot of videos. We watched an interview with him and his um, ex-wife. You know, they were, it was, you know, the character is not based on him, of course, but um, we can't say that it wasn't, you know, influenced in in certain places. But you don't want to say it too loudly because let's be real, he's listening somewhere. Everybody's listening. I know, but I want him to like the show. Is that a weird thing to say? <laughs> like, I would be so excited if I was like, oh, Elon Musk is a fan? Okay. You know, like that would be... <laughs> So, you know, since we started doing these these podcasts in quarantine, which we've been doing every week for over a year now, we've had a lot of guests and, you know, including the creator of Mr. Robot, who are very attuned to the paranoia of Zoom and things like Google Hangouts and all the things that we've that everyone's been doing this this past year. So, you know, does a show like this make you more paranoid or does it make you desensitized to this techno paranoia? I think that I've just succumbed to it. 
I know that there's nothing, I have no privacy. We have um, Alexas in every room almost. Um, they're listening to everything. I just think that probably my life is too uninteresting for them to extract any real data from me that would be of any use. And that's, that, that's my protection. I'm like, they can listen all they want. There's nothing going on here, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, between, you know, being on social media, um, being, you know, being reliant on technology, um, in so many facets of my life. Um, you know, it is, it is scary. Um, I remember watching, um, that documentary, The Social Dilemma, I think it's called. And, um, and then like for like 48 hours afterwards, I was paralyzed. But then after that, I just went back to <laughs> the way that I live my life, which is very, um, you know, tech reliant. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, okay, okay with it, I guess. Well, you talked a little bit about how some of the more outlandish aspects of this really and truly are not that outlandish. But as you're dealing with a show in which future tech plays such a major role, what kind of rules do you have to give yourselves regarding the plausibility or outlandishness of it? Were there any things people pitched that were just too ridiculous? Or would you look in the news the next day and, as you said, Elon Musk is developing whatever the next outlandish thing is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we approached all the technology in some as um, something that felt like not too far in the future or something that felt like um, fantastical in that, like, wouldn't this be great and fun? You know, for example, one of the probably extreme things is the way that the hub operates and that um, it can change. Um, you know, it's virtual reality cubes that can change the, um, the location and the, um, and the geographics, you know, like so easily. And, um, and that, you know, that is, um, that is pretty extreme, but we felt like, you know, like how fun is that? And at first glance, you might even feel like that's kind of romantic, you know, like if you want to go to the beach, he can create it and like, how great is that? But it's, you know, but then it's like that terror of it's not real. Um, you can't escape. And, um, and so those things, you know, we wanted to have in it sort of like an emotional value to all of the things that, uh, all the tech, um, items that we used. Well, along those lines, I, I feel like there's, you know, and this is just me speaking from my perspective, so maybe everyone's having a different read. You hear the core premise of the chips that bind you together with your partner and all that. And and my reaction is, no, that sounds like a horrible thing. Why would I ever want that on Earth? How many people in the writer's room were willing to take the pro side or a conditional pro side to technology like that? I mean, out of everybody, I think Alyssa was the only one who said she'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> which tells you a lot about her. Um, no, but I mean, I think that it's one of those things where, you know, with along with a lot of technology, it's like, if you, if you think about it in one way, you're like, is that bad? You know, like to have, um, you know, just like no miscommunication, no, um, secrecy. Um, you know, like if you, if you think of like pure love, you know, you say like, why would I want to hide anything from this person? I want, I want, you know, I want to give myself wholly to this person and have them give themselves wholly to, to me. And so in that idealistic way, I could see somebody saying like, like, why is that bad? I have nothing to hide. You know, um, the reality of that is terrifying. You know, there you can't censor your brain.
brain. You don't want to censor your brain. You don't want to censor your emotions. And the idea that somebody could have access to all of that um, and not be able to discern, you know, like what you want to reveal like that. That's just I mean, that's a living nightmare. Can you give us the elevator pitch of how Alyssa justifies her own willingness to do it? Because, like, to me, it would sound sort of hypothetically Pollyanna-ish, but I assume she's got a nuanced reason for why she would do it. I mean, Alyssa, you know, one of the things that I love so much about Alyssa is Alyssa is always looking for um, convenience. And so, you know, for example, she... she uh, Texted me, um, last, was it last night? She said that she was ordering, she had sheets, um, ordered from Target to be rushed to her home because she didn't want to do laundry. And I said, but you have a washing machine in your house. And she's like, I know. And then I'd have to do it, you know? <laughs> and the, the thing about Alyssa is like, it's so funny. She fully just like, is, you know, like she says that she, if she could put the internet in her eyeballs, she would. She is looking for that shortcut. She is looking for that thing to make things easier. So I think in some way, you know, she's joking. And I think that if really push came to shove, she would not do it. But, um, but I think in the, um, in, you know, in the short term, she would be like, oh, that'd be great. Then I wouldn't have to like tell my partner you know, like what, you know, what the plan is tonight for dinner. And he just know, and that'd be, and that's convenient, you know? And so I, that, that would be probably her short answer. I mean, if there was a shortcut to having the what's for dinner conversation, I, I would sign up for that yesterday. That is like the, the worst discussion that my wife and I have every well, single then, Leslie, day. It sounds like you want the chip too. I mean, you know. yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> it, it sounds much simpler to me to have a, you know, box of post-it notes next to, next to the table or something. I agree. Yeah. I will, I will argue all day long with my husband over what's, what's for dinner as opposed to letting him inside this brain of mine, which, you know, I present as, as sane. Um, and I keep those other thoughts like very, very hidden. And so hopefully people, people haven't caught on yet. <laughs> we, we did the, the cup with the popsicle sticks and names of restaurants and types of food that you, you pull a stick out of the cup and you're like, that's what you're having for dinner. Except we wind up exhausting every stick in the cup and then still. That's such a good luck. idea. I didn't even know about that. I'm, I'm learning something here. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> You know, obviously, you know, the show is going to draw some comparisons to, to Black Mirror, which, have, of course, has become almost a brand name when it comes to genre bending takes on, on techno paranoia. What contrasts do you did you want to draw to the to that? Were there things that, that you wanted to do? Like, were you aware that this was going to become a comparison, especially when you have you know, an actress like Kristen, who's already done an episode? Sure. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's a huge compliment. I mean, Black Mirror is one of my favorite shows. I've seen every single episode. You know, I saw it, you know, before it became popular in the U.S. And, um, and the episodes that I love the most, um, were the ones, um, that dealt, you know, with, uh, you know, like emotions and relationships. There was one where, um, you could rewind, you know, in your eyeball to uh, moments before. So like, if, you know, if a couple had an argument, they could rewind that moment and say, no, actually you did say this, you know? And I remember that like really spoke to me. And, and so, um, you know, we just, I mean, we're huge fans of that show. So any comparison that we hear, um, we love. I mean, I think the only difference is that, um, you know, so many times I see, 
um, an episode of that show and I want more of that story and those characters. And because of the anthology, you know, you leave it there. Um, whereas here, um, we have a real journey, you know, that we want to, um, take the audience through with the characters and, you know, and, and if we're lucky to get a season two, you know, we have ideas for how that journey continues. So I'm glad you brought up season two really quick. I'm going to detour on that. But so you this is an ongoing story. So with the same characters. So Billy, Kristen, Ray Romano all returning for a potential season two. It's not an anthology with a different made for love chip person and relationship every season type thing. Um, yeah, no, we um, we have um, a lot of ideas for our characters that we just, you know, fell in love with, um, with writing and just, and you know, watching those actors on screen were just like a daily joy for us. So um, so we want to keep it going. Um, and uh, and that is our hope. Going back to Black Mirror a bit, um, I, I feel like a lot of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror are the ones that are least bleak. But if I think about Black Mirror kind of as a as an overall thing, there's a there's a definite bleakness to that. And this is a much brighter version, both in terms of its color palette, but I also I feel like in terms of its optimism. Uh, does does that sound right to you in terms of your approach or a contrast? Absolutely. I'm actually really happy you said that because I was hoping that that came across in the show. Um, we didn't want the show to be bleak, you know, despite, um, you know, sort of the horror of what's going on. We wanted, you know, like I said earlier, we wanted it to be fun and um, and and optimistic. And I think that even you know, even Byron, for all of his faults and just like mis, you know, judgment on, on how relationships work, you know, you, f you feel for him sometimes and you feel empathy for him. And you'll, you're going to see that even more in the, in the back half. And, um, and so there is, um, a bit of optimism of just like everyone's trying to make connections and everyone's trying to make it work. Um, and there's an optimism in that. So even though, um, you know, Herbert, for example, you know, it could be considered really bleak um, that he has chosen to spend the rest of his life with a synthetic partner, you know. Um, it, it's not, you know, they actually have a nice relationship, which you're going to see a little bit more of. <laughs> and you understand it. And I think that those things, like when you understand the characters, it makes it, you know, and, and where they're coming from, it makes it less bleak. And then I think we also tried to infuse as much comedy as we could to lighten up those moments so that even when Byron is doing, you know, uh, like spying on her and, um, and watching her every, every move, then when you see him, you know, try to connect by, you know, drinking beer, for example, um, you know, it's just like, that's just absurd and ridiculous. And we wanted to keep that kind of vibe going throughout the show. So now you mentioned Ray Romano's Herbert and the relationship with the with his synthetic partner Diane. So, I admittedly I haven't read the novel. Is Diane the sex doll part of the novel? Um, and then how did filming with the doll actually help given the challenges of shooting during COVID? I'd imagine that made things one less person to have to give the COVID test to. Exactly. Right? Although Ray used to always <laughs> complain that she um, wouldn't wear a mask. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was the only one on set was just, she was an anti-masker. I don't know. Um, Diane, I mean, Diane is, um, you know, she, uh, she's incredible. She, um, you know, despite being this doll, 
um, the number of times that we would catch her like look on set on whatever was going on, like off screen or, you know, or what we were shooting on screen. It was almost always perfect because she always had this look of like slight disappointment and it always made us crack up. Like we were like, is this scene working? And we look at Diane and we're like, no, okay, we got to change something. (laughs) And, um, and you know, I love Diane because, uh, you know, I have to admit when I, when I started with the show, um, I, you know, I had judgments on Diane. I was just like, okay, a character is a sex doll. All right. You know, and then, and then as we started, um, learning more about like what a synthetic partner is and, um, and, um, and understanding that, um, that, you know, there are people out there with real relationships with synthetic partners and there's a reason for that. Um, you know, we all started to really care about Diane. And, you know, on set, I will say, like, she was treated like a cast member. We never treated her in a way that she was an object. Um, You know, even, like, we had an intimacy coordinator that sort of navigated how, you know, we um, all were around her. You know, I mean, there was a ton of respect. And I just, I I thought that was amazing. And, um, And so when we, you know, saw Diane... Um, getting boxed up at the end of the night, like it hurt our hearts, you know, because it felt unfair that she had to go in there until um, her next shoot day. Because <laughs> we we're like, let her breathe, you know. <laughs> she. Um, so yeah, she really took on sort of a human um, kind of um, presence on our set. I feel I feel like I have so many horrible follow ups, but I feel like they probably have to start with what was the casting process like. For Diane, how many different versions of a comparable synthetic partner did you look at? Because I have to assume some are more and less utilitarian in their aesthetic, for example. And so you obviously wanted a partner who one could take to a fancy event. <laughs> but how how did you decide on the characteristics that you wanted that character to have? Right. Well, um, you know, we, we thought about, like, what is... What would be um, Herbert's fantasy with still being somebody that felt um, like she wasn't completely out of place in his trailer? You know, so, you know, we started there and then, you know, and then we did the search for, you know, looking at all these, you know, synthetic dolls and see what's out there. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ones out there that felt inappropriate for uh, for Herbert's trailer and, and to be Herbert's partner. Um, but the the funniest thing is that once we got into investigating, you know, which um, doll we were going to choose, we found out that there was actually a lot of copyright issues involved because the dolls are you know are based on real people. They were molded after real people and. Um, and then, you know, just legally, then, you know, it just like opened up a can of worms. So Alyssa Nutting, um, very generously offered her face for the face of Diane. And so Diane is her. And, um, and, and she, and it was so funny. I mean, she endured what I would find to be a total nightmare of like sitting under the casting and the molding, you know, of that. And when I asked her how it was, she was like, it's the first real vacation I've taken in years. <laughs> and she loved it. And she's like, I would do it again. And I was like, oh, my God, you're crazy. I, I, 
I have to laugh that the hardest, it sounds like the hardest role to cast in this show was the sex doll. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and it was, it was just so great. And then the, the, um, on the last day of our shoot, um, we pulled a prank on our director, Stephanie Lang, and we distracted her away from the monitor for a moment and we switched out Diane with Alyssa and then she called action and then, um, and she saw like the camera sweeping by Alyssa and it was just like, she was dying laughing. It was so funny. So how, how many Dianes are there? Cause I can't imagine it's cheap to do that. There's only one Diane, like full Diane. And then, um, and then there is a, um, a lesser Diane that we used, um, in, um, episode two, which is when, um, the character Shane Voss, um, played by Chris Bagnall, he had to carry the doll, like, into the alleyway. And the actual doll is like, I think, I think she's like, 90 pounds. And so the second doll was more like, you know, 40 pounds, uh, which is still, you know, pretty heavy to like carry. And, you know, he had to do it over and over again. And I felt so bad for him. Like the doll's head kept popping off. Oh my God. Uh, and we were like, no, Diane. It's like, imagine all of us. It's like three o'clock in the morning. It's freezing cold. He has to run with the doll. The doll's head keeps popping off. You know, our props department, they're like duct taping the doll's head. And we're just like, oh, God, this looks bad. And then we had to make sure that that's not shown on camera. And it's like, oh, and we're like, Chris, carry her in a way that we're not going to see the duct tape. I mean, it's a whole thing, you know. Please release the blooper reels and, and that prank on the director. Seriously. <laughs> I, I, like, glorious. I like the idea that in season two, we suddenly start seeing Diane wearing a lot of scarfs because the neck has become detached or something. Tape, yeah. but, but I don't really like that idea at all. So, <laughs> so let's not dwell on that. Uh, so I, it's impossible to follow that, but I'm just going to try and I'm going to try anyway. But, uh, you know, the larger question the show asks is, you know, how Hazel could have spent 10 years in an enclosed, isolated environment known as the hub with only virtual connections to friends and loved ones. That must have seemed much more hypothetical two years ago before we found ourselves in this pandemic. Um, how has the past year changed your perspective on both Hazel's predicament and the sensory overload that she experiences when she is back out in the real world. I mean, it was, um, we could never have imagined that um, while writing this, that we could have gone through a year like we did um, and that we still are in some ways. And um, and we really, you know, it did affect um, our writing a bit because we, we shot a number of episodes before we shut down for pandemic. And then, um, and then, um, and then we shut down in March of, of 2020 and, and then we, um, you know, looked at a lot of things of, um, how do we capture, you know, emotionally what we're all going through in real life and make sure that, you know, uh, we're presenting that in the show. And you'll see some of that in the back end of the show on, you know, on flashbacks that she's having that feel a lot like, you know, just that claustrophobia of being in this, you know, gilded prison. Um, and, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's the ultimate irony that we ended up living, you know, uh, in a year like this. But, um, you know, it's interesting that you pointed out about like, how could she stay, um, with him for 10 years, um, you know, in that kind of environment. And that's something that we talked about a lot because we wanted to make sure that, 
Um, you're not looking at her character and saying like, just get out. Like, why would you get out? You know, are the doors actually locked? Can you leave? You know, we discussed that a lot. You know, are the doors of the hub actually locked or is that more, you know, like metaphorical? And, um, and, and that um, sort of informed our decision to show certain scenes of when they were together to show that, like, it's complicated, you know, and that there is that all, you know, even toxic relationships, there's some good there that um, that can be confusing. And that's why people end up staying. And so, you know, you look at anybody who's gone through a divorce after being with someone for a long time. It's very hard to just say like it was all bad because why would they stay, you know? And, um, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things involved in, in terms of like connection and fear and all of those things. But, um, we wanted to make sure to show that it's not just easy and it's never black and white. So, okay. Are they? Are the doors locked? Um, we thought that the doors are technically not locked. Um, but, um, there's, there's no way out in that there's, you know, there's, there's people, there's, there's guards, there's layers, like you don't know how to get to the, um, get to the next place. Um, however, she, um, for, for her, um, she did not have a, what you'll find out that she did not have a, a finger implant, um, to be able to move around freely. So, so for her, the doors were kind of locked. And she, and when she's exiting at the beginning, you know, she's not exiting. She's not trying to exit. She's trying to exit everything. I mean, she's trying to kill herself. So was it hard to make? Because that's discussed in, in some of the later episodes as well. The the idea that that was what her choice was. Was that a hard thing to balance? You know, sort of that part of her psychology that she has to be our, our active protagonist in this series minutes after within the time frame of the show she was trying to kill herself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think that we wanted, um, it's like, it's like she had that resolve. And so we wanted to make sure that we treated that moment, um, in a way that wasn't too dark, you know, so that you could move past it. And then, and then when you see what happened afterwards, it's almost like you forget that she was actually killing herself. And, um, and, you know, and that's, a, that was a tricky thing because we were like, that is such a severe move. And how do we, um, how do we move past that? Like right away, you know, but I think that that's the environment is so, you know, um, fantastical that it's, it's like, um, it allowed for that a little bit, I think, you know, but that was totally something that we wanted to make sure that didn't feel too, too heavy. Yeah. You know, uh, the show does land a little bit different amid the pandemic when everyone have, has obviously been forced to connect and adapt via Zoom, you know, in, in a larger sense, you know, you did mention the shutdown and having to kind of go back a little bit and, and make sure that th those themes landed a little bit more. But what kind of other changes were made because of the pandemic, be they creative or even logistical ones? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I have to say the, the, um, huge advantage that we had, um, with the time that we had down from the pandemic is that, you know, after having shot a couple of episodes, you know, we learned so much about the characters, um, through the way that our phenomenal cast, you know, um, played them and what we had seen, um, you know, when we were shooting that, um, creatively we changed a lot, actually, um, Melissa and I during, um, 
during the shutdown. And, um, and that's a luxury that writers don't have. You know, once, once you're shooting, you're just off and running and you just, you know, have to, you know, get the days done. You never have that time to reflect and say, Hey, is this the best way that we wanted to take this character? Or is this the best, you know, storyline for this? And, and, um, to be able to sit with that and, um, and uh, cut a couple episodes and then reflect and change things and reshoot and then, you know, and then rewrite, you know, the second half. I mean, that was a huge luxury. Um, you know, I joked, a very bad joke to say, like, I recommend, I recommend a pandemic for the writing process. <laughs> but I mean, for us this year, um, it was, you know, it, we, we had that, we were lucky in that we were able to go back. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned you did rewrite the second half and you've got the final two episodes of season one out April 15th. What can you say about how the season ends and if it really does set up a, a second season, which, you you know, as we record this, it's now Wednesday, April 7th. That hasn't been announced yet. Yeah. Um, what can I say? I mean, I will say that um, we definitely wrote an ending that I that I hope that the audience will um, you know want to see what's next. Um, but it is a um, resolution in terms of um, of two two primary relationships um, in the show, which is um, you know obviously Hazel and Byron, but also Hazel and Herbert. And there is an emotional sort of resolution at the end of the show um, that um, story wise, you know, doesn't have to stop there. But um, but, you know, where um, uh, Hazel's head is at. I want to go back a little bit because we talked so much about the casting of the synthetic partner that I don't want to shortchange the actual flesh and blood humans in the show. those are those are very tip uh very tricky roles that Kristen and Billy have. They have to have a lot of different shadings and a lot of eccentricities to them. How much were those two actors kind of first choice in someone's mind, and how much was there a process where you had to find the right people? Um, I mean, honestly, for both of them, they were first choices right away from the work that um we knew of theirs and um and just we were we were just such fans of both of theirs and so um we we never had to get to the point of really thinking about anybody else um and and we got them so that was very lucky for us and um i will say for hazel you know that's a that is a tough character i think to play because you have two characters who are very different. Hazel that's in the hub and then Hazel um that's outside of the hub. And you know, like some of the reviews that I um I really love um say that her performance outside of the hub is a little bit feral. And um I love that description of Hazel, you know, because she is nothing um like that inside the hub. She's so, you know, like um just um the idea of like perfection you know in the hub and um and so for somebody to be able to carry you know both of those and also with the nuance that Kristen Milioti has i mean it was just a dream dream casting for us and then billy um you know we just we really love the way that Billy was able to approach this character of Byron Gogol because he so easily could just be seen as this evil villain that, um, that you hate and that you mock. And, um, but it was important for uh, him to have, um, you know, just, I'm sorry, you're hearing my daughter in the background. This is like, this is, uh, Zoom, Zoom interviews, right? Um, but, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it went from quiet to to a madhouse behind you. Oh, this is every day. <laughs> this was me yesterday with my dog going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the humanity that um, Billy brought to that character, I mean, there were moments where, you know, we would sit back and we're like, wait a minute, are we rooting for him? What is happening? Like, we, we're, we're feeling sorry for him. We want her to be back with him. It's like, you know, the fact that we're even asking those questions or feeling those things is such a credit to how Billy played that role, you know, because it was so important that, um, you know, like I said before, that we understood their relationship and that it wasn't just like an evil person who's controlling somebody who is, who is less powerful than him. They both have power and in different ways. And, um, and I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll make it quick. So uh, get, get, almost done here. But one last question for me is, you know, you, you mentioned that you do hope that the show comes back and I would imagine runs for multiple seasons. But what what's next for you? I mean, I'm hearing rumblings that you may have an overall deal somewhere, et cetera. Um, yes, I do. Um, I guess I'm allowed to say it. I, um, I have an overall deal with Warner Media that I'm very excited about. Um, and, um, an overall deal with my three-year-old daughter that, um, you know, right now I'm not sure I should have signed on to that one, but, uh, <laughs> um, no, yeah, I, you know, I have something in development, um, at Netflix right now, and I have a project that I'm going out with, um, with the, um, actress Greta Lee that I'm very excited about. Um, and, um, so, you know, I'm busy, but, um, you know, um, just at the top of my mind is hoping that we get as lucky to do a season two because not only was it so rewarding for us um, and for me creatively, it was the um, it was the most fun that I've ever had in my career. I mean, I just hands down this casting crew blew me away. We were just like you know, air hugging <laughs> throughout the whole, um, you know, time that we came back um, and, you know, shooting. I mean, we were just, um, we bonded so much because we went through this year together. And so there, um, it really feels like a family. So it's just like, we just want to keep working together. And that's, you know, um, that's a, yeah, we feel really lucky. So. And we always end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? I gotta tell you, I am watching Get Shorty, um, on, um, that was, um, that's now on Hulu, that was on Epics. And I hadn't, that one I hadn't seen before, despite the fact that it has both Ray and Billy in it. And, um, but my husband loved the show, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. And then I started watching it, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, and it is, laugh out loud funny i mean it's very much about the entertainment industry um and um i'm so sorry you guys. <laughs> i think we can cut it at that <laughs> i think it's a good place to get you back to your family thank you so much christina for joining us thank you so much i really appreciate it <laughs> thank you the first six episodes of made for love are now streaming the final two episodes of season one are out april 15th on hbo max Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Josh Thomas returns with season two of Everything's Gonna Be Okay on Freeform, the Joss Whedon list, The Nevers, launches on HBO, 
Amazon's Lena Waithe and Little Marvin Horror Show Them arrives. Jamie Foxx returns to TV with Dad Stop Embarrassing Me on Netflix. And the final season of Younger begins on its new home, Paramount+. Plus. Dan, what you got? I, I feel like if I go back and forth between referring to Josh Thomas and Joss Whedon, eventually I'm going to call him Josh Whedon at least once. And the listeners have to understand I'm well aware he's Joss Whedon and that he's Josh Thomas, but... Sometimes you get confused. Anyway, my favorite of those shows is the Josh Thomas show. Uh, I'm I'm just really such a big fan of Everything's Gonna Be Okay, which premiered its second season on Thursday, but is now the first two episodes available on Hulu and the entire first season available on Hulu. It is such a strange and cringy and quirky little show about the relationship between a brother and the half-siblings he barely knew who he's now serving as a guardian for. Uh, Josh Thomas is extraordinarily funny. Uh, he does the thing he does, which is awkward erudition, and he is very, very good at it. Uh, as I've said before, I think on the podcast, but almost anywhere else. Also, the the young actresses who play his half-sister, uh, you know, Kayla Cromer and Mae Press, are, are so good. And they're both in such difficult roles. And I love watching them interact with Josh Thomas. The first two episodes of the new season are really good. The first episode is one of my favorite covid slash quarantine episodes that anyone has done before it really catch captures the stir crazy nature of being trapped and not doing anything with a small group of people for basically a year the second episode is also good it features guest stars maria bamford and richard kind who are both good fits into the world um i really really enjoy that show and uh People should check it out if they haven't. The Nevers is a much harder show to to get behind. And I think, as I said in my review, it's almost the kind of show where in a perfect world, it would have been either absolutely unbelievable, and then you would have gone, look, I know you don't necessarily want to see a Joss Whedon show at this particular moment, but it's fantastic. And so if you watch a few episodes, he'll be gone at the end, and you can be there when the new showrunner takes over. Um, or if it had been horrible and I could have just said, okay, I know you don't want to see a Joss Whedon show right about now, and trust me, you don't want to see this one. Instead, it's right in the middle. It's full of things that I really like a lot, and a lot of those things do stem from, stem from Joss Whedon, who is not an incidental part of this. He is the creator of the show. He is the writer of the pilot. He is the director of the pilot. He is the director of the second episode, uh, etc. He's very involved. Um, the show is... It's a Victorian X-Men or a Victorian version of Fox's The Gifted. Maybe it's a little bit of Victorian Watchmen. I think HBO would love to hear that. I don't think it's that good or that thematically coherent, but it's about people who suddenly get powers. And it just so happens that most of the people who suddenly get those powers are are women and a lot of people of color. And this is naturally enough a threat to the white male power structure in Victorian England at that point. And there are interesting things happening. And there are a lot of very, very good actors here, some of whom are used very, very well, and others 
are not used as well. So, for example, it feels like it's a waste of James Norton. It feels like it's a waste of Olivia Williams. But it's a really good vehicle for Ben Chaplin, who's an actor who was obviously a star back in the day, Truth About Cats and Dogs and whatnot. Uh, it's a really good role for him. It's uh, it's an older, gruff role for him, and he's really good. Uh, Pip Torrens, who was fantastic in the first couple seasons of The Crown, is really good here. And then Joss Whedon has always been very, very good at casting young actresses. Uh, according to allegations, not so great at treating them well on set, but casting them, for sure. It's a thing he does. And Laura Donnelly is the star. She's very good. Uh, I've seen her in things before. I don't know if I've seen Anne Skelly before in things, but she plays a young woman whose power is the ability to control or visualize energy, and she uses it to invent fun, steampunk, modern technology things like kind of Q in in James Bond. And she is fantastic. She's she's terrific. She's funny. She's all that stuff. Um, who else? Uh, Rochelle Neal plays a character whose name is nickname rather is Bonfire because she can control fireballs. She is tremendous. She is just badass and great to watch. So I think everybody's response to this is going to be partially governed by how much they feel like seeing a Joss Whedon show right now and partially governed by how much they're willing to put aside the things that don't work and concentrate on the things that do. I ended up kind of right in the middle. I will keep going with it. But in any given episode, the amount of things that I just didn't care about or that actively annoyed me was roughly half and half with the number of things that I liked. And that's that's not the best of ratios. But if your ratio cl tends closer to 60 or 70 or 80 percent positive, there's there's stuff here. Yeah, Dan, I'm a diehard Buffy fan. As I said on this podcast, that's part of the reason um, covering the reunion that they did years ago at Paley Fest was the first assignment that I ever went on as a TV reporter and TV writer. Knowing how much I love Buffy, Dan, am I going to like the show? Or are diehard Buffy fans going to like this show? I'm going to say probably not. I'm going to say probably those people will be mixed towards the negative side. The, the thing you have to remember is even the people who want to celebrate Joss at the most have to acknowledge that a lot of his shows require a certain amount of time to find their rhythms. Buffy is not the show in season one that it was in seasons two and three. Um, so this feels like a show that's finding itself, just shows that find it themselves. You have to be willing to have the patience with them. And I don't know how many people are going to feel like they want to have the patience at this exact moment with, with Joss Whedon. That's just the reality of this. Um, and then the last of the big shows that I've actually had time to get to is them on Amazon. And I've seen three episodes. It's a 10 episode horror anthology show. And them has the bad luck to follow as soon after Lovecraft Country as it does that that's just the unfortunate situation, because it is also a show that uses horror as racial allegory. The story is about a family from, I believe, North Carolina that moves to the middle-class white enclave of Compton in 1952 and integrates the neighborhood. So guess what? The white neighbors in Compton, not so happy with their new black neighbors, and they are horribly racist, but the house that the family moves into, also perhaps a little bit haunted. Not so good. Uh, it is definitely creepy. It is definitely disturbing. 
Uh, after three episodes, I'm also fairly confident it doesn't need to be 10 episodes. The amount of wheel spinning in three episodes is enough that I'm pretty sure they probably could have done this 10 episodes in six. Restraint is something that streaming services don't always have so well. It's also a show where there are a lot of really fun stylistic devices in the first episode that don't follow through in subsequent episodes. There's a, a kind of gritty late 60s, early 70s grindhouse exploitation aesthetic in the first couple in the first episode that really is almost gone in the second and nearly invisible in the third. I, I dug that. If, you, if you're going to give me fun visual stuff in the first episode, stick with it. Uh, so, yeah. I was interested. I would have been much more interested at six episodes. I will definitely finish this at some point because it does move fairly well. Even if it is all sorts of redundant and wheel spinny, the three episodes I watched, I watched them back to back to back and, you know, moved fast. So it's it's worth checking out. And it's not like Lovecraft Country was the most consistent show in the world either. So if this is inconsistent... I'm not just comparing it to Lovecraft Country because Lovecraft Country is a paragon of of smoothness. No, it's this is an ambitious thing that both shows are trying to do. It's interesting. The history of Compton is also interesting. Lots of people don't know anything about that at all. Not sure this is necessarily going to teach them, but it could inspire them to research. Yeah, lots of, lots of interesting elements. If it's your kind of show, you'll probably know fairly early on. Um, and that's my recommendations for this week. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with special guest Sierra Teller-Ornelas, the showrunner behind Peacock's Rutherford Falls. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. It helps spread word of mouth and moves us up various search engines and whatnot. We're always happy to say hi to you guys on the Twitter if you have questions, comments, and concerns. And as Leslie mentioned during this week's mailbag segment, for future mailbag questions, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.